0: Welcome to Event FOMO, this is your audio catch-up for events you wish you had gone to but didn't get to. No wonder FOMO, fear of missing out, is a thing. With the magic of podcasting, we bring you the events essentials. This is episode two, the University of Melbourne 2018 Professional Staff Conference, entitled Our World,
1: Our Future. My name's Steve Samantino and I'm a futurist. And that's a fancy way of saying I study technology, economics and infrastructure and social behaviour and I mash them up. I think about it in like almost like a Venn diagram of three things that overlap. So business models is in one circle, economics is in the other circle and anthropology is in the other circle. Those things go together and then they form sort of what the future looks like. And so I study those patterns and then I share those patterns with people on media, at conferences, with you know consulting and keynote speeches. And that's what I do.
0: Steve, you're here at the Professional Staff Conference. What's your opening line?
1: My opening line is that the most important technology over the last 20 years is actually emojis. And the reason is that we're actually going through a transition to a global pictographic language that everyone can read no matter what language you speak. And that's because language and writing is one of our first ever technologies and it's probably the most important one that we've ever had. And so that human communication nature and the warmth that goes with that and the ability to communicate is the thing that we need to remember.
0: I've started to see books that are just written in emoji and in some ways it's reminiscent of Egyptian hieroglyphs and and pictures and even the Asian languages that are written in characters are actually pictures made simple. This is extraordinary. Is it changing the office already?
1: Yeah, it is already changing the office and in fact that you've picked up on what I'm talking about in the first part of the speech. I'm going to talk about the history of language. I actually speak Mandarin and so I understand the characters. Here's what's interesting. So to be at an academic level in Mandarin, you need to know 3,000 characters, right? We've currently got 2,666 emojis, so we're almost there, right? And so, and it's not a throwaway statement. Pictographs and hieroglyphics and Chinese language is based on that. It's far more efficient than the language that we use with an alphabet. And uh, the thing is that it translates across languages. I actually, I truly believe that this is part of that transition, The problem with written communication is that, unless it's long form in a novel, it's very, very hard to get context. Context is is, is really important, and body language and tone and all of these things get lost in the written word. And so it's almost as though we've invented this technology to overcome that, because the thing that... Elevates humans isn't just the ability to communicate; it's the emotional context of the communication and what it means. And so, if we understand that, then we've we've got a chance of understanding meaning when we're actually geographically displaced from each other. And and increasingly, um, that's kind of what's happening in the world because the tools at the moment enable for the first time in history labor and location to be separate. That's never happened before. That has never ever happened. So that's what I like to look at. And in fact, I like to delineate the four. Major tools in human history is, I call them, spear, seed, spanner and silicon. You know, you can just see the evolution of humans through that. You know, hunter and gatherers, uh, civilization, industrialization, and now the tech digital age which is silicon. But that fourth one is really different to the first three because for the first time in history, where the work is done and where the work is required can be separate and so we need to develop an emotional context to be able to communicate across borders and across geography.
0: I have a question about emotion and communication. A lot of communication is very clinical or business-like. It's done in a very sort of stoic semblance, for want of a better yeah. word. So how does emoji fit into that world?
1: You know, before peace labour became part of what we've got, and that's actually in the office, We it's literally like a factory. Offices and schools are a little bit like a factory. What we wanted to do was to remove the human. The whole thing was to have an instruction manual, to do as you're told, to wear a uniform, to follow yellow lines, to have a siren go off at 9am and follow that method. And the reason was is because efficiency was the new game in town. Efficiency was about stop thinking, you just put that bolt in that car door, you do this bit, and if we all cut it up into little pieces and remove the emotion, remove the humanity, get rid of the rough edges on things, we can produce efficient, consistent products. The problem is is that we lost our core benefit as humans doing it, and now we're graduating from the industrial enclave, and so we need to reinvent that emotional element. It was actually removed on purpose. You go back to Frederick W. Taylor and Taylorism in the studies of scientific management, and it was all about removing the human, removing the thinking, removing the emotion, just do this and you'll learn more than you did when you were a craftsperson or an artisan. But now that we're in a post-industrial age, it's time to bring back the humanity and the craftsmanship and the artisan nature of work. And almost with artificial intelligence, now we're outsourcing that left brain logic to the microchip so that we can get on with creativity and humanity.
0: Wow. So if we're going from an era of compliance to an era of the artisan, is it a brighter future?
1: Absolutely. What we wanted to do was to remove people's personality from everything. I say that the, the worst thing any company can do to remove creativity is tell people what to wear in the morning. You have a uniform, first thing they do, get out of bed, is follow someone else's rules. And that's designed on purpose, right? If you want to have a look at how much freedom someone has in their life, look at whether or not they choose what to wear. That's the number one thing, right? And so now what we need is the things that are available are the things that are human, the things that we buy because a human did it, because it's imperfect, and the imperfections and that natural artistic flair that individuals have is, is actually what's coming back, right? We'll, we'll always still have that industrial thing's gonna be there to a certain extent, but I think that the true value is emotional labour now and creative labour. It's almost like we're moving up Maslow's hierarchy, and now that we've got houses and fridges full of food and, you know, too many things in our garage, the question is, what can we do? And I think that we're, we all become artists. And my definition of being an artist is the same as Brian Eno. So Brian Eno says that art is anything you don't have to do. So the things that we don't have to do is where the value is. And so we need to do that. And the spreadsheet in the office and all that's really just factory behaviour as well. So we've got to cut that down because the spreadsheet tells lies. Like you can look at a store and go, guess what? We made more profit because what we did was instead of having five workers on a Saturday in the store, we had three. And it looks like it's more profitable on the spreadsheet This is what the spreadsheet doesn't count. The seven people who walked away because they couldn't get served.
0: So what's your take-home message for the audience today?
1: Take-home message is you have to be you. You have to find the real you. And you know what? More than it, you have to have the courage to be the real you. And you know what? It might mean that where you are now is the wrong place. It might be that once you start being the real you, they don't want you anymore. Good. That's a shortcut to a better future, right? And then you have to have the courage to do that. It's only in the last kind of 10 years that I found the real me and life got better. Right, so you have to be the real you, and that means you need to take lots of small little experiments, find what works, and know eight out of ten of them will fail. But those eight out of ten lead you to the 20% gold, that Pareto ratio, and that's where your future lives.
0: Steve, thank you. Hey, Buffy, what would you think of that?
2: That was great coming from the man wearing the coolest shoes in the room. I know, they're patent red, and they kind of glow when he walks around. And they're only his indoor shoes. I love him. Have you just come from the keynote? And what did you think?
3: I thought it was great and it was really relevant to where I work.
2: And what will you share with your colleagues tomorrow about the keynote from Steve? I
3: think the human element of any service and process that you're involved in in the university is really important. Just responding to individuals and on opportunities on that level.
2: Did you see Steve do his keynote this
4: morning? I did. And what did you think of it? At first, when I saw him, I thought he came from a theater background. Then I saw him uh, turning into a businessman, then he was a journalist, then he was a father, and in the end, he was like representing the whole future world. I was very excited. What will you be sharing from his
2: talk with your colleagues tomorrow or even later today? maybe uh, how
4: we can do things better in the office like bring more ideas into action because we do work in the boxes his talk inspired me or thinking of ideas how we maybe take more breaks and reconvene, and working from home is a very attractive option. And then on Fridays we come back together to the office, maybe go out for lunch, reconcile our ideas, and I think we would achieve much greater results than we do now in our little cells. Next
0: up, Buffy spoke to some of the presenters from the session called Using Social Media to Achieve Strategies Outcomes.
5: I'm Let Beljack. I'm social
2: media advisor.
6: I'm Eve McCool, Social Media Manager.
2: And what surprises you most about the social media landscape at the University of Melbourne Eve?:
6: I think that there is sometimes a lack of understanding of the impact social media can actually have. Um, and it's always interesting when we conduct training to see people's faces light up at the possibilities. So it's always good to conduct more training.:
2: Could you tell the audience how many impressions the university has gotten this year? alone. So, so
6: far this year, it's been 114 million impressions, which means content has popped up on 114 million news feeds so far.
2: And does that surprise you?
6: It's an increase on last year, so no, but it does surprise others.
2: So what would be your top tips for other parts of the university who want to become more active on social media and use this engagement to reach different audiences?
6: know your audience first and foremost. Often people publish content that their manager tells them to or that is part of business, but really you have to think about would you interact or engage with that content if you saw it on your newsfeed? And if the answer is no, change the way you're posting it. What about you, Lep?
5: I think also understand the amount of work that's required. They underestimate how much work it takes. And they go into it thinking, oh, I can spend 10 minutes a week on this. And it inevitably fails and they feel disappointed. So if you put the right amount of work into it, you can achieve the outcomes.
2: So how much time should people be dedicating to social media each week, in your expert opinion? Well, I mean, they can schedule content ahead of time. So if they
5: have a block of time, you know, once or twice a week to schedule content so that at least something's going out daily, I think that's fine.
6: If it's a Twitter account, for instance, I always recommend at least 10 hours of professional time because you need to include moderating. You can always schedule the posts, but if people respond, you should look like an active account that is actually listening to the community. And you also don't want to be in a notice board of content. You want to have interaction, you want to be retweeting, replying, liking the community so that they actually do follow.
0: We've cornered Susie Irons on a presentation called Challenger Thinking. Now, what is Challenger Thinking, Susie? Challenger thinking
5: is really about thinking differently, challenging the status quo, challenging what's accepted as normal, but particularly with an improvement mindset behind it. So I spent 18 years of my career working for a challenger organisation in a disruptive technological industry. And there it was all about providing choice, providing something different to the number one player, because we were the number two player in the industry. And that all came back to the customer experience, providing a point of choice for the customers, starting with the Customer and working backwards from there. And I put a quote up in my presentation that I came across in an online blog that basically said the key to challenger thinking is it's all about making what's perfect better, improving what's broken and continuing to challenge ourselves so that we continue to grow and outrun our competitors. And that, in three bullet points, that sums it up. It's
0: almost like continual innovation, continual improvement. I once saw a saying that said, train like your second best – Now the University of Melbourne, we love to say we're number one in Australia, but you're saying beware, Mm -hmm. you want to keep that, so you've got to actually challenge yourself. That's the crux of I think what I was trying to get across is if we can
5: think like a number two thinks in a number one organisation, if we can harness that, we're unstoppable, no no one can catch us if we can think like that because we're always going to be getting better, we're not going to be resting on our laurels. I mean think of an Olympian, he doesn't break his world record and then stop training, he's pushing himself against himself he's just trying to outpace himself if you get a world record you're going to want to break that world record that you've set you're not just going to go now I can go home like I've done it all and I don't want to be controversial but the thing that really struck me when I came to the university okay so we're a number one organization and I was really excited as I said in my presentation to come and work for number one after working for a a, a number two player for so long and I got here and from a corporate perspective i personally don't think that our processes and how we do things are what I would expect a number one organisation to look like. So we ran those poll everywhere things to get people's feedback in the room and I think they were pretty damning in a sense that, you know, a few people rated us good on a few things but most people rated us on average or poor for how easy it is for them to do their job, to provide a good service. We did have better scores on the final question, overall how satisfied are you with the service that professional staff provide you? But all of those ones about you know, if a problem happens, I can escalate it quickly and resolve it. We have rated ourselves terribly. But if we can get good scores on questions like that, that's what we need to be doing, because that's when we know we're number one. If we're rating ourselves going, yep, we're excellent at this. But even when we're excellent, there's still room to improve. You know, everything changes and evolves.
0: So no resting on your laurels (laughs) and making sure you live and breathe the fact that you've got to be responsive to the customer needs. That seemed to be pivotal to your talk. Tell us more about the customer's needs. I don't hear anyone talking about
5: customer at the university. We do talk about students, okay? And students are one of our customers. We do have a student experience survey, but I don't hear anyone talking about customers. Who are our customers? We have so many customers. And that was one of our points is, you know, it's not easy if we haven't really had this conversation before because first we need to try and define who our customers are. That could be industry partners, some of the the things that people called out in the sessions, philanthropic supporters. Actually, the philanthropic supporters, we we look after them quite well because we we get the value of them, right? Right. But, you know, the research, funding collaborations, members of the public, all these people, all the contractors that we use... For much of my career, I worked in the employee engagement space and I think we're missing the big picture in terms of the employee engagement. You know, how do we engage our employees and inspire them to do great work? How do we remove the the roadblocks and all the frustrations and things that stop them? Because, you know, one of the key drivers of employee engagement is customer focus. As an employee, you know that you've got a strong customer focus and you're doing things because it's all about looking after your customers, whoever your definition of customer is, and the thing we're talking about in that process was the project group that we were working on we had many customers each step we had to consider yeah we picked a primary customer but it also had to work for six or seven other stakeholders or customers that also need outputs and and needs something from that process so it's quite complex but it's not but if if we're always thinking about the customer and we're thinking about how can we make it easier for our employees to be empowered and to deliver good service then like you can't go wrong I think that's a a really important aspect of it Susie thanks thank you
2: which talk did you just come from? Challenger thinking. And it, what was it about? Um, just challenging the way you look at things, the way you think about things, not taking things for granted. And what will you take back to the office tomorrow to share with your colleagues? Big hags.
4: <laughs> big, hairy, audacious goals. <laughs> big hags, I think, is a good goal for everyone. To breaking it down and doing little bits at a time and chipping away at it and finding a great solution for a big problem.
7: Well, good luck. Thank you. <laughs> I'm JC Bloom-Hagan. Um I am on the advisory board this year because I was last year's chair of the Professional Staff Conference. My paid employment is um, in Student Success. I'm the manager of Student Program Development. Give me some reflections from the conference today.
0: What sessions did you go to and what are some take-home messages for you that you want to share with people who
7: couldn't make it today? Look, I've been to... Um, what about learning about internships, the different internships that students can do, and why you'd want to have one as part of a staff member, you know, the value of having an intern come and work for you, a student. And, and one, of the key, one of the key takeaways from that one was that, you know, our students are our customers, so why would you not have them here working with you, designing what it is you're doing in? And in my role in particular, we're doing events and programming for students. Why on earth would we not want to have a student intern there telling us what's the best thing for them? So, now it's perfectly logical. And the fact that there's lots of paid and unpaid ones, I mean, I know... FTA and budgets are a real crunch right now, but knowing that you can have an intern, they're credit, academic credit for it. That's huge value. What else did you go to? Uh, look, I've been to one about being, um, how to be an active bystander, about the respect initiative and everything, about how to, if you see something, you should act on it, and that safety is everybody's business. Just establishing the culture that everybody should be paying attention to this and everybody should have their pitch ready to step in should they need to. Did they have an example? Yeah, the example she gave, um, Kath gave, was um, she was talking to some students up at Dukey, and a student there was um, talking about a situation where he was at a pub and saw a, another gentleman, and she had some very, he had some very colorful words for how he was telling her story, which she didn't use, but he saw a guy approaching a student, another girl, they were you know, on the dance floor, it looked like it was getting a little aggressive, she looked a little uncomfortable, and how he stepped in and what he said and what he did, and I very much enjoyed that one. What else have I been to? Professional staff leadership seminars. Different leaders around the university come and give a session about their career journeys. One of the questions that came out of that session was actually somebody from the law school who has been to some of those sessions, and she said the narratives that they're hearing from the female leaders that they have come in are very much around how I worked really hard, I got this, I got this degree, I got this degree, I worked, I you know, I worked every angle and worked really hard to get there, where a lot of the males that they're having come through are saying things like, oh, well, I just kind of fell into this job and just kind of handed to me this, and she was really querying, can we not do some digging further about the different narratives and, and asking even the people who are saying that, why do you think that is, and having that conversation as well. It was a really interesting insight and in question, I thought.
0: We've cornered David Cameron Staples, who's just delivered a talk on Autism 101. Autism is an interesting aspect of society in the sense that some of us perceive the world differently. Tell us more about autism.
8: How many hours have we got? <laughs> it, as you say, it's a difference. It's a characteristic set of differences, but it's called the autism spectrum because the exact Symptoms which any given person might have, and the severity of those symptoms can vary wildly. So, someone could be able to pretend to be normal most of the time. Someone could be unable to care for themselves. But generally, it involves specific social differences, uh, literalism, weirdnesses in IQ testing. So, between subscores, there might be wide variation. You might have difficulty with working memory or with visual information. Because it's a lifelong thing, so it's not brain damage, you can't catch autism in any way whatsoever, although you might get something like autism from brain damage, but that's still brain damage, not autism. Because it's pervasive and lifelong, it has all sorts of other effects. So anxiety, a lot of autists suffer bullying at school, uh, whether we know it, whether we're autistic or not. So a lot of us have that shared experience and how we react to those experiences differs of course.
0: What's your reflections on characters like Temperance Brennan in Bones and Sheldon Cooper in The Big Bang and The Good Doctor and these various characters that
8: appear to be on the autism spectrum? It depends on the writer. Bones went for 12 seasons and there was a wide amount of variation from her being a a clueless jerk in, in some episodes. There was one episode particularly which struck me It got me right in the feels where she was having a fight with her husband, only she didn't realise she was having a fight with her husband. So she was working and he came in and was very short and curt with her. And she responded in kind because that's how she responds to everyone. He said, fine, well, you just keep working. I'll just go home. When her friend comes in later, what happened to him? He said he was going home. I'm presuming that means it's fine. Oh, honey, that doesn't mean it's fine. It means he's upset with you at which point Bones, who is herself still upset, breaks down sobbing and says, there's something wrong with me, but I don't know what it is. And that was the moment that made Bones a person for me because that's something that most autists have is this knowledge that we're different, but especially before diagnosis, we don't know what, which is where diagnosis is helpful because it gives us a name for the thing to describe how we're different. And with that handle on it, it gives us ways of dealing with it and working around it and finding our strengths.
0: Does it give some autists relief to know they're part of a bigger population of people?
8: I think it does, because especially for my generation, when I was a kid, there was no such thing as a diagnosis of Asperger's. There was no... I wasn't severely disabled enough to be diagnosed with anything. Now that it exists, and I have been, and there are people who actually understand me. And when I talk to them, it's, it's communicating on a completely different level because there's no both of us talking through masks. We're actually taking the masks off and, and communicating directly. And we know that there's much less miscommunication going on. So knowing that there are other people out there like myself has helped um, just, just knowing that we're out there. Of course, the concept of a social group of autists is kind of a contradiction in terms. But again, that's where the internet comes in. We can have a social group without a, having to ne- needing to meet.
0: What makes a good work environment for you?
8: Having a clear idea of what work I'm supposed to be doing, having the information I need to do it, having it in writing, having people who are understanding of when I'm getting stressed and need to calm down and sit somewhere in a corner for a while to because I've run out of spoons to deal with the stresses of the day and they say, okay, I will handle this person, you go sit down, calm down and get back to coding, that, that sort of thing. Understanding of where my difficulties are so that I can leverage my strengths.
2: So David, how do you engage with your management to have that dialogue about what your needs are in the office environment?
8: My boss sits at the next chair along in our pod. He has been amazing the whole way through. So it's it's largely individual in this case, but I work in IT and we are stereotypically, IT is the haven for people on the autism spectrum. So there's a larger amount of understanding because probably most of the people are further along that spectrum, even if they're not actually at a disabled state. They're understanding, they know what's going on, they understand and respect where I'm coming from.
0: If there are people listening who are starting to identify with elements of autism, what do
8: you recommend? There are lots of places to read about it, to be careful about what they read, because there's, it's the internet, there's also a lot of nonsense. It is possible to contact groups like Amaze in Victoria to get more information, but it's sometimes difficult because they don't seem to really understand the autistic population they're more talking towards the parents of autists and therapists and people who are interested with it not to us specifically so it's a bit difficult there are groups around to do it but it can be tricky especially for an adult who doesn't have a diagnosis to get to the point of having a diagnosis so one of the things I was saying at the very end of my talk was that we're trying to build a website for information on autism specifically how it deals with the university and try and put into that as much information as we can about where people can get specific help, where people can get general help, where people can go to get a diagnosis, what's involved in that sort of process, and what to look for if you think maybe autism explains some things. What are the actual symptoms of autism? Thanks, David. Thank you.
2: What has been the highlight of the day so far?
8: Today the Autism 101, because I have a niece and a nephew on the spectrum, so that kind of opened my eyes a fair bit, as I'm aware of where they're at, but this kind of put into a different context of stuff that I didn't know.
7: I really liked the guy that talked about autism, so it was Autism 101, and it was just really interesting to hear about how you know their minds work, and how they perceive senses, and um, how different it is, how much it contrasts
1: to other people's
2: so we're at lunch at the moment. What will you be taking back and sharing with your colleagues tomorrow?
1: I would say that the thing that I would share, take out from the most is that we always need to be thinking forward into the future. What can we offer the students of tomorrow? It's very important to focus on what the students are after right now, obviously, in the present. but. In a decade's time, what is the customer of the future going to be after? So I really think that's important.
2: And do you have an idea of what the customer of the future may look like?
1: I think that learning is becoming a lot more agile outside of the classroom, and I think that we as a tertiary provider need to embrace that.
0: Next up, some more commentary on the session entitled Be an Active Bystander. Know when and how to help.
2: Tell me about what it takes to be an active bystander.
8: So, one of the interesting things that they talked about was the 3D approach, which has been commonly adopted across lots of different campuses. So, D for direct, direct intervention step in, say something, distract, you know, try and divert and distract the conversation away or dissolve the situation a bit, and also delegate, so bring it to someone else's attention who can act with some
3: authority in some other way police or safer community is what they call. My name is Sebastian. I work for the student information team.
0: Now, last year you won the People's Choice for the presentation. What made your presentation so popular? What do you think? Or what did other people think?
3: Actually, our presentation was the power of visuals to communicate. Our presentation didn't have any words on it other than the typical like contact information and the introduction and some stats. That was it. The rest of it, it was just a visual presentation. So. What we did, we shaped it in a way that we had the really clear take-home message, which was, if you want some communication to make it engaging and to get the outcomes that you want, make it visual. So during the presentation, actually, we went a lot of the time repeating, like, make it visual, make it visual, make it visual. So at the end of the presentation, we actually asked the question, and we were like, all right, so if you want to be successful with your communications, what do you have to do?
0: Make it visual. And that was it.
3: Yeah, <laughs> so...
0: And when you can't do visual, listen to a podcast. When you can't watch a screen, when you're driving in your car, when you're walking your dog, do a podcast. Yeah. I, I had to squeeze that in.
3: Yeah, no, totally. And actually, it's really good because I used to run a podcast as well. It was about rock and blues with a friend. And podcasting is actually a totally different animal. And it's so interesting as well. Because of the commuting times, Is you find the users in a totally different mindset which is great, more receptive, actually.
0: Now, you've just been at this year's conference, the 2018 conference. What have you enjoyed here? What are some take-homes that you're going to be sharing with people in the office tomorrow?
3: What I really liked is that more and more, all the teams across academic services and the university are moving into this customer-centred and human-centred design approach, which is fantastic. We have the luxury of having the audience write Next to us. So go on campus and check, test, ask students about what you're doing and shape that into the way that you're offering services, delivering communications. So the more people get on board, the more we're going to be able to do something that is meaningful for them. And from the keynote speaker in the morning, Steve, that was just fantastic. That was a really good presentation, really engaging, a lot of TED talk techniques around there, which was great. He was funny on top of that. But the questions that he was asking made me think. Actually, I wanted to go to sleep for a week to try to digest all the things that I heard. So it was fantastic. I talked to him a bit after the presentation, and he gave me his business card. And it says his name and futurist. How cool is that? Can you get more cool than that?
0: (laughs) Except you, Sebastian, you've got your own coolness.
3: Oh, thanks for that. Thanks, Sebastian. (laughs) No worries. Thank you.
0: I've cornered Erin Wilson and Corey Thomas, who've just delivered a presentation on seven easy steps, tips to get your email read, because after all, all of us have got a gazillion emails in our inbox, but which ones do we read? Well, these guys have got insider knowledge to our heads. Okay, Erin, okay, Corey, what makes an effective email?
2: Thanks, Andy. So uh, we actually have a golden rule, and that golden rule is consider your audience. Don't send an email, don't write an email until you've actually found out who your audience is and what are their needs, what are their drivers and what do they need from you so that you can get what you need from them.
0: Corey, what's the next thing I need to think about?
6: I think planning is key. Thinking about what you need to say and when is best to say those things. So plan out what you need to say and time it over a period of time. If you have a project that you're leading, don't bombard your team with All of this information at once just say the things that you need to say when they're most important to your team and you'll find that you'll get better cut through
0: Corey do you always read Aaron's emails
6: always I make sure I do
2: (laughs) (laughs) do you read Corey's emails I read Corey's emails as soon as I arrive in my inbox. absolutely thank you is this your first professional staff conference yes it is and what has been the highlight of the day so far
9: I really enjoyed the session I was just in on translating strategy into results that was looking at how some work has been done within the Faculty of Fine Arts and Music putting together a fantastic nine box grid structure about turning well, strategy into results.
2: And what do you think the secret is?
9: Making sure that all the different pieces are looked at holistically and making sure that you connect the pieces together. So instead of just having strategy and communications and measurement, making sure that these all talk to each other and interact with each other so that they're not operating in isolation.
2: And do you think that will be an easily implementable strategy for you tomorrow when you're back in the office?
9: Oh, well, I'm not sure anything's ever easy to implement, but certainly something that I'll be looking to try and uh, put into place.
2: And where are you headed next?
9: Oh, we've only got another 10 minutes and then it's off to uh, the afternoon keynote.
7: So, without further ado, I would like us all to welcome Dr. Anita Heiss. Please, thank
4: you. Irodu marang, iu ndu yana de heis, bala du a redju gear long, arambu gibu brangli bala Williams, nado moruwe gigi garja yagirah Geelong, long, yindemaradu we randoi gu kulang uh, hello, everyone. My name is Anita Heiss. I am have Wiradjuri belonging. I'm from Arambi and Brungle. I currently live on the land of the Yaguru people and I pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Here's an interview with Anita before she
0: delivered the afternoon keynote address. I'm an author, a public speaker and a creative
4: disruptor. Tell me about creative disruption. What's your take on it? If you're not doing something disruptive... What are you doing with your life? So I try to use creativity, my books and writing and um, performances with young people in particular to make some change, to make people, to disrupt the way they think about themselves, but particularly how they think about Indigenous Australia today and how they interact and engage. What's your take-home
0: message today? You're about to confront hundreds of University of Melbourne professional staff.
4: What would you like them to think about? I guess what I'd like them to think about is the fact that we live in a global village, that we are, it's one world that who we are today in terms of being Australian, we are here because of the past that has created who we are and what we do today will direct our future. And just to be conscious of that, everything we say to another person impacts on them either positively or negatively. And we have the power to control the language we use and just to understand that we can we can do good things with words. I don't wear ochre, I don't throw a spear, and I don't drink beer. I love going to the beach and into the classroom to teach Indigenous studies, for my students are my buddies, and I tell them about Aboriginal life in Sydney town, although my skin is brown, they shouldn't frown, because we're all the same. I want to tell you about my writing, how exciting, I hear you say, so with no delay. I wrote a book called Token Curry. some call it poetry. Everyone at the conference is getting a copy a of your latest book, Growing Up in Aboriginal conversation Australia. Conversation. I am so impressed by this, and, and I don't impress easily, I would tell you, but I think by the university offering every single delegate a copy of this quite significant anthology that will change the discourse in this country because Aboriginal people are driving the conversation through this book. I think it makes a real statement to all of the Melbourne University community, staff, students and broader community that the university really wants to do something positive and actually give Aboriginal people a space on the radar of this university and I applaud this activity and I I really hope that other universities challenged, take up the challenge of, you know, what they can also do, not only through this book, but through a whole range of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices, what they can do within their own university communities. I'm putting you in charge of the
0: country. What's your call to action for all of us today and the future?
4: Every day, try and do something that makes a difference in the world. Thank you so much. And I would say in the Wurundjeri language, mandangu, and that's thank you.
0: A big thank you to the organising committee who let us gate crash the 2018 University of Melbourne Professional Staff Conference entitled Our World, Our Future. Thank you to all the keynote and sessional speakers and participants who spoke on this podcast. And thank you, listener, who never made it to the conference but listened to this podcast. Your hosts were Buffy Gorilla and myself, Andy Horvath. Audio editing by Buffy Gorilla and Arch Cuthbertson. Supervising producer, Andy Horvath. This podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne.
2: Hey, stay curious. Do you have a favourite emoji? Smirk. And do you have a favourite emoji? (laughs) I said the sideways laughing face with tears.
3: (laughs) See you next
9: year.